It is March 19th, 1953. It is the 25th annual, the silver anniversary of the Academy Awards. We are at the Archaeopantages Theater in Hollywood, California, live on NBC. Also, we are at the NBC International Theater in New York, New York. We'll explain. It's really confusing. I don't know why there's two theaters, but we'll we'll talk about it in a little bit. Anyway, um, it is time for the big award of the night. Please, the envelope, sir. And the winner is... Brrr, the Greatest Show on Earth. Or is it? Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> okay, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Envelope, Please. Sam is here. I'm Rance. And Rance is here. Happy birth... Oh, yikes. Happy birthday, Rance. Oh, thank you, thank you. By the time this comes out, my birthday will be several days past, but... Um, if you uh, felt like something special happened on the 1st of August, it's because it was my birthday. Okay, so here we are, 25 years in, the silver anniversary, and we're finally on TV, Rands. Mm. We are on TV. Yes, we are. And uh, I mentioned, this is this is kind of an interesting ceremony, and they do this for several years, where they have uh, two different ceremonies happening simultaneously, um, and they cut back and forth because at the time there were so many New York-based people in the film industry. They went ahead and just had a ceremony in Hollywood and a ceremony in New York. That way they could get the maximum number of people attending, basically. Um, I forgot if you mentioned this at the top of the episode, but were there two hosts then, technically? Um, yes, uh, there was Bob Hope over in Hollywood, and Frederick March did it in New York City. Um, and then they also list Conrad Nagel as being the MC. Um, so I think that, I, I guess that just means the person who was making the announcements in between what the host segments were. Sure. But, um, but yeah, essentially they wanted to make the television debut of the Academy Awards be as big and splashy as possible, get as many people involved as possible. So they had two different, uh, they had it being broadcast live on both coast with two different ceremonies um, and cut back and forth depending on where the winners were located for the ceremonies. So they legitimately had like statues in both LA and New York. And depending on which city you were attending, you could go on stage to accept your Oscar in either L.A. or New York. Yes, so they there were, a, I guess, a lot of extra Oscars minted, <laughs> just <laughs> yes. in case. There are a lot of clips that show them cutting between the two uh, locations where they'll say something like, uh, and the MC, I guess, Conrad Nagel, comes on and says something to the effect of, uh, in New York... Accepting the award is so and so. Gotcha. So, okay. Well, that's And then there was nicely. a big screen in the middle of the stage um, that was showing what was happening on the other side to the audience on the opposite coast. So, wow. yeah. Riveting. Very complicated. I know. <laughs> I'll say this too with, with having the Oscars finally broadcast on TV, it in a way kind of killed the radio broadcast of the Academy Awards, and effectively yeah. sort of radio in general. You know, once people at home could see their favorite actor or actress on TV in reality at an awards show, I think the 
I don't know, the excitement of hearing your favorite actor on radio just died, you know, what's better, just hearing their voice um, or seeing their face, you know, sans their TV or movie makeup off and the real person, you know, you can actually see them in front of you on your TV. I think that was just way more appealing. Well, yeah, um, you know, radio in the 30s and 40s in particular had been very much what TV would become. There was uh, different networks and they had a lineup of of shows that were on every night that were sitcoms and dramas and and they had live audiences that would come and watch the tapings of the shows um, or recordings I should say and um, and movie stars would guest star on these radio shows as part of how they promoted the films basically uh, they would have 45 minute uh, versions of the movies that were out in theaters that they would dramatize on radio and that would advertise the movie that was in the theater and they would get two of the big names actors from the movie into the, you know, I mean, like there's a lot of those radio broadcasts. Also, Lux Radio Theater was one of the ones that you see a lot of. Um, And the Academy had one, I think there was one like called the Academy Theater and yeah, so this is, I mean, TV is here to stay at this point, and this is basically the movies um, accepting that reality by putting this on television. I would agree so. Uh, yeah, huge, definitely huge. And, of course, now it's tradition, watching the Academy Awards every February or March or whenever they decide to hold the next Oscars next I mean, year. crazy. <laughs> it's, uh, it's the highest-rated award show annually, um, even with the fact that ratings have been lower in the last few years, it still ends up being like it's almost always the second highest rated event after the Super Bowl. Yep. Uh, it's it's um, it's the tradition. And I think that what we're seeing in the 25th Academy Awards with it becoming a television event is we are watching this become the version of the Oscars as we know it. The evolution is complete at this point. It is now the glamour central event of the season. Absolutely. And I'll say this, before we kind of branch off into the um, acting categories, there's something kind of interesting about this year in particular. The top six main Oscars, including all four acting categories, picture and director, they all went to six different movies. Yeah. That is the last time that this will happen. Isn't that yeah. crazy? No, that is that is insane. You never you never see this kind of thing. Never. And, see um, the movie that wins the most Oscars wasn't nominated for Best Picture. <laughs> <laughs> no, it wasn't. And you know what? Yeah, we'll get into that a little bit later. I have I have things to say about Bad and the Beautiful. Uh, actually, so let's go into our first category: Best Supporting Actor. Let's start there. Okay. Uh, we've got Anthony Quinn winning for Viva Zapada, which is another um, movie by Elia Kazan, again starring yes. Marlon Brando. And he plays Zapata. Sure in the film, does. apparently, um, <laughs> but not. I think it's the father. I think he plays like the dad. Anthony yes. Quinn plays his brother. I think is what you oh, said. Brother, right? not brother. Yeah, yes. that makes more sense. There, correct. Courses. His brother. Um, a historical situation. I mean, problematic nowadays because we have people who are not Hispanic. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, Anthony Quinn was Mexican American. 
Yes, he but, was. But um, but I meant Marlon Brando playing his <laughs> definitely <dad>. not <laughs> not quite it's correct. A problematic. Um, but Anthony Quinn winning. Uh, he is a Mexican American actor, um, and so that is in it in itself kind of a, a big deal because we got somebody who um, is not just you know your typical white Hollywood guy uh, winning an Academy Award. So absolutely, and he will go on to become a very very famous character actor and even oftentimes leading man as well and there's a couple of movies where he was nominated in the leading category and his career lasted decades decades and and decades we'll talk about him again because he won supporting actor again in a few years yes he did yeah the 50s Uh, were kind of his decade that's for sure yeah no he was he was a really really big name and and probably the most famous um and successful mexican-american actor of this period definitely yes sort of like the javier bardem of his time i mean that is if you don't count um if you don't count uh rita hayworth who (laughs) who was part mexican-american but the hollywood system hid all traces of race by shaving her hairline and some other stuff go figure let's see yeah Also in our supporting actor lineup, I'd say kind of one that stands out to me would be Jack Palance in Sudden Fear, Uh, his first Oscar nomination for supporting actor. Yeah. And also one of his first movies, too. What I think is interesting about Jack Palance, especially this year in particular, where he's nominated in supporting actor, where Marlon Brando nominated for lead actor for Viva Zapata, uh, Jack Palance, one of his first jobs was Brando's understudy for Streetcar Named Desire on Broadway. Isn't that crazy? That is such an interesting little connection. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. and here he is supporting Joan Crawford in Sudden Absolutely. Fear. Absolutely. And he is good in Sudden Fear. I must say, I I think Sudden Fear is one of Joan's better films. And I think Jack Palance is a really, really good villain in this movie. Well, I'm glad that he got the nomination then. I Also the first nomination of uh, Richard Burton. Oh, there you go. Wow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the first of many. First of many, always a bridesmaid. Um, we never get a win for Richard Burton. No, but um, but uh, he's in uh, My Cousin Rachel, a movie we briefly discussed last week because it's an Olivia to have one film as well. Um, so that's what's going on in Best Supporting Actor. Yes. Um, then we have uh, Best Supporting Actress. Yes. Um, I do have opinions here. Um, <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> first of all, I want to say I love Gloria Graham. I think Gloria Graham is a, just a, incredibly, um, an, a incredibly strong screen presence. You know, she's not always the lead in movies. She's oftentimes supporting. Um, a lot of people probably know her from It's a Wonderful Life because she plays Violet, the uh, kind of town um, uh, flirt. Let's yeah, there you that. go. It's <laughs> uh, a nice way to put it. Yeah, uh, you know, she's the one who says, "Oh, I just wear this when I don't care how I look." You know, the whole that whole thing. Um, and then she's also in Oklahoma. She plays um, Ado Annie in Oklahoma. Uh, but uh, it's really interesting that this is what she won for because it's a very small part. Very um, small. It's a very very small part. Um, and 
it's one of those situations where you're like, well, I'm glad this actress has an Oscar, but there are other roles that she could have been nominated for and won for that would have made more sense, including in the following year, a role she wasn't nominated for, but she's great in, is a movie called The Big Heat, which is one of the great film noirs. Um, and she has a very heavy supporting part that includes her getting her face disfigured because, get this, um, the like um, mob boss guy that she's that she's shacking up with in the movie, he <laughs> throws a scalding hot pot of coffee on her face. Oh my. And then she has the disfigurement from that and has to, like, testify against him or something like that. And um, so she has this great part in that, wasn't nominated. Um, And she wins, probably in part because she wins for this, which I think this is more about her being kind of... I mean, she's also in the Best Picture winner this year. She's she's had a good little run at this point. So maybe that's what's there. The reason why I have an issue is because um, I... (laughs) talked about this last week singing in the rain is a just incredibly delightful film and the funniest parts of the movie are courtesy of gene hagan who plays lena lamont which is the actress who uh says i can't uh hold on, i can't have to do it i can't stand him you know the whole Perfect. gonna be real nasal nasal can't stand him she creates such a wonderful confection of a character that is the villain but also absolutely hilarious and delightful every moment she's on screen she also gene hagan the actress um supposedly debbie reynolds is dubbing her singing and her talking in the film but it's actually gene hagan doing her real voice um and then debbie reynolds i mean debbie reynolds does her own singing when debbie reynolds is singing but when debbie reynolds is supposedly dubbing gene hagan it's gene hagan in the film so i i just i think she would have been a better choice for best supporting actress considering how slight gloria graham's part is in the bad and the beautiful i could not agree more i wrote down two things gloria graham forgettable gene hagan should have won that is what i wrote down for the supporting actress category it is really remarkable to me that gloria graham did walk away with this Oscar. I think it's exactly for the reasons you said. 1952 was a huge year for her. And a huge, as you said, a couple of years leading up to 52 as well. And I think this was just a performance they could single out. Yeah. And, and reward you know, her for. It's like, I really want to emphasize here. Like, Gloria Graham is great. And they made a nice little movie about her a couple of years ago uh, with Annette Bening. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the name of that movie? Do you remember that? Um Film Shit. stars don't buy, die in Liverpool. That was the name of the movie. Yes. Yes. So they made that, like they did that, and and her life was really strange. Like she was married to uh, the director Nicholas Ray, who would do oh, yeah. um, Rebel Without a Cause, and she had an affair with his teenage son while she was married to Nicholas Ray and then she and Nicholas Ray divorced and when the, and then when the son came of age they got married well there you go i mean like it was a very mary cable turno situation it was very strange um but gloria graham is all of that aside is a very interesting screen presence and i always like her it's just weird that she won for such a small 
thankless role. Definitely. I will Thelma say one Ritter of my also should have an Oscar. I just want to say that real quickly. Like <laughs> yes, she uh, Thelma Ritter, every time she's nominated, probably should have won. You know? I completely agree. Uh, yeah. yeah, she definitely deserves an Oscar far and away. I will say my favorite story about Gloria Graham that I read one time is Gloria Graham really did not like the way her upper lip appeared on screen. So she would stuff her gum line with cotton balls to kind of fill out her lips. I guess an early version of filler, if you will. Yeah, apparently she even like got a series of plastic surgery treatments throughout. Sure. Like she had a lot of um she had a lot of uh uh self-image issues, it seems. It's a shame sense. too, because she is like I don't want to undercut her just by saying that this is a weird Oscar for her. She is a yeah. she's a great little actress. Um she is. And there I will say this too, there is a scene in the Bad and the Beautiful, where I think might be the closest, you know, moment to her Oscar glory that I could find is after their, her and her husband are tucked away in a room while they have guests just outside, and he kisses her, and it's this kind of scandalous thing where she says, don't kiss me with guests outside, but he does, and she likes it. And she gives him this smile, and then the camera follows her as she walks across the entire room, opens the door, kind of looks back at her husband, gives him a little wink, and then walks outside and is this hostess that she kind of is. You kind of see the duality in the woman she's portraying in this film. So there is, you know, there's hints at a genius performance there. Yeah, it is. It's just like the role as it exists in the film, which uh, we can talk more about the Bath Mutual in a second. Yeah. Uh, uh, is just where she is. She's just not. She's she's an aside in the yes. story. She's I mean, she just, literally. They literally kill her character so that the guy can write a screenplay. Do you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. very thankless, as you said. It's a perfect way to explain it. Yeah, it's interesting that she would take this kind of role, though. I mean, like. Yeah. Um, because at this point, she had already had a few leads in some films. Um, she's in a really great movie with Humphrey Bogart called, um, uh, 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 oh my goodness, I can't remember the name. I've thought about this movie so many times. Um, it's, uh, it's a film noir. It, um, it's, uh, it has Humphrey Bogart. Um, (laughs) could be any movie in his career. (laughs) In a lonely place. Oh, there we go. (laughs) Um, in a lonely place, uh. Uh, where he plays like a screenwriter and it's it's and he he like wants to kill her it's like so good um i love that but and nicholas ray directed it uh go figure yeah but then you know she slept with the son so that this uh you know his 13 year old son um so funny what can you do what are you gonna um, do I'm not laughing about that. That isn't something to laugh about. It's just so bizarre. So that's Best Supporting Actress. Uh, Let's jump over to Best Actor. Leading Actor. I mean, here's what I wrote down for this. Could it have been given to anybody else but Gary Cooper in High Noon? This is one of the definitive screen performances in American film history. Yes. You know, there really is... Zero. I mean, I'm looking through the nominees. There's zero competition here. I can't think of anybody else taking home this award. I mean, I'm sure we've discussed before that westerns are not my favorite thing. Yes, but, but this noon, isn't really a western. Yeah, High Noon really, I wouldn't even consider it a western. I mean, yes, no, it is, but the subject it is, matter it's but talking it is. about exactly. High Noon, and this is going to be very important when we talk to the talk about the best 
picture race yes is very much an allegory for what's going on in hollywood at the time with the house on american activities committee mm-hmm. um and it's it's such a dark um noirish um like how do you even describe it uh um it is sort of moral like fable Yes, it's taking this idea of McCarthyism and the blacklist and just hiding that, you know, into themes of a Western film. I mean, the fact that it's directed by Fred Zinnemann in itself kind of shows you this isn't going to be a true Western. This is going to have some punch behind it. Yeah. And Fred Zinnemann uh, is I mean, this is the first time we've we've talked about him, but he is um, a director we will get back to a few different times uh, because from the. Uh, I mean, he started in the 40s, but in the 50s, 60s, 70s, he's one of the most prolific um, directors in Hollywood. Uh, and he um, he is going to win uh, some Oscars. Sure will. Uh, <laughs> yes, he will. Uh, he's going to win. Uh, he's already actually won one um, because we haven't talked. He's won two. We haven't talked about this because he won one for best short subject and one for best documentary short subject in uh-huh. 38 and 51 respectively. Um, now he will win um, another Oscar very soon. That very is soon. not, um, that is a, an actual directing Oscar and he may win another a little bit later on. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the suspense. But he uh, he is one of the um, he's one of the defining directors of this era. And this is the first time we get to talk about him. And High Noon. High Noon is uh, you could argue it's his best film. I mean, it's it's definitely one of them. It's almost like it plays like an hour and 20 minute long suspense film. It just builds and builds attention higher and higher and it until takes place in real finally. time. It Which I think is amazing. Time. Yes, it's it also so good. I mean, you... it also introduces us for the first time to one of the great luminaries of the fifties, um, somebody who only made movies in the fifties, uh, Grace Kelly. Oh. Um, and... <laughs> Which let's talk about the age difference here for a starter. Is Grace I mean, Kelly, who was God. what twenty when she filmed so this? So many. There's so many movies in the fifties where this is a thing too, because uh, the Gary Cooper generation was still above the title while their female co-stars of the thirties and forties were not getting those roles anymore. And there were these new female actresses who were 30 years younger than them. Yeah. And it's, uh, I will say it's very evident how big the age gap is between Gary Cooper and Grace Kelly in this movie. It's, it's pretty clear. Um, I'll say, I'll say this to you though. Um, Gary Cooper, who was very, very good friends with, uh, John Wayne. John Wayne actually accepted this Oscar for Gary Cooper, who couldn't be at the ceremony. However, John Wayne openly admitted to hating High Noon. In fact, he was offered the role and turned it down because of the obvious ties to um, the blacklisting and McCarthyism. Why then do you think, Rance, Gary Cooper accepted this role? Also, who was openly um, you know, uh, uh, for the blacklist. He was for this McCarthyism. He wanted communism gone, you know, being closer to John Wayne. So why do you think he actually decided to do this role? You know, people are so complicated because this he was one of the famous Republicans of Hollywood, mm-hmm. you know? 
um, and he supported the people, the people, the various people who ran against Franklin Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. he was, yeah, he was what they called a friendly witness to Senator Joseph McCarthy, you know? But then, interestingly, he stood up for the screenwriter of of High Noon, Carl Foreman, um, who would be blacklisted after High Noon. And to his credit, in later years, he did voice his um, opposition to the blacklist. But, you know, during 1952, when it was there and present, he supported it. You know, it could have just be with the changing of times. He was friends with John Wayne, who was, I mean, I feel like John Wayne's influence and power over not just movie producers, but fellow actor friends was immense, you know? So Gary Cooper probably couldn't um, voice his anger against the blacklisting. You probably felt like he had to go along with what John Wayne said. You know, and also I think maybe the maybe this ends up being the the pivotal moment for him on this particular issue, you know, because he gets to know the screenwriter while he's making the movie. And that probably, you know, it's the same it's the same thing about people when they get to know the gays don't end up hating the gays because they realize the gays are people too. Um, you and we're know, fabulous. And we're amazing. But um <laughs> I think that it's that type of situation. When you put a face to something, it's really hard. It's really hard to not relate to the humanity. So, True. I mean, at least uh, Gary Cooper stood up for him. I agree. I think it's a really awesome kind of piece of history that he did do this role and what that role stands for, as opposed to what his friends were thinking. You know, I just think it's really, really awesome. So, Best Actress. Oh, let's uh, get into this. It is a stacked category uh, with interesting names. Mm -hmm. Uh, The winner is uh, Shirley Booth, a (laughs) 50-plus-year-old actress. Yes. Um, So, very unprecedented. I think probably the oldest person to have won at this point. She was, Uh, yeah. This is decades before Jessica Tandy. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And she wins for Comeback Little Sheba, a role that she had played on Broadway. Um, And they have a very heavily make-upped Burt Lancaster playing her husband in the film. That they do. And um, interestingly, uh, Betty Davis turned this role down before they gave it to Shirley Booth. Oh, my. Which she said was one of her great regrets. Um. But it's okay, because she did get nominated this year uh, for (laughs) Star, one of her ten nominations. Um, You've seen the Star, right? I have, of course. (laughs) Do you like it? (laughs) The Star is kind of a hot mess. Um, It is a big mess. It is is campy and fun. Yes. Um, It's kind of a weird nomination. Um, I'd say it's it's the strangest of all of Betty's nominations. Um, But... uh, I mean, I like, I don't, I don't hate that she's nominated for it just because it's so left field. It's so um, ridiculous. And she plays an Oscar winning actress in the movie. There's yes. a scene where, uh, <laughs> there's a scene where she's like, she, she's a star that like falls really far from grace and has to work at a department store. <laughs> and um, there's a scene where she's just so fed up with life that she like grabs her Oscar and says, come on, Oscar. Let you and me go get drunk. And then you just see her drunk driving with the Oscar sitting in her dashboard. It's like, 
it's so off the wall. And I will so say, campy. I'm very glad we have that moment preserved on film. It is that's a pretty good scene. <laughs> it's one of her real Oscars too, obviously. Ah, which that, I love. Which one do you think it is? Dangerous or Jezebel? Well, I mean, like if she's drunk driving, it's definitely dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> Touche, touche. <laughs> the best part about this is that she's, this is the only time this happened. She's nominated against Joan Crawford, who is probably has the slightly more legitimate nomination here for Sudden Fear, uh, yes. which is one of her better latter day roles. A very taunt suspense thriller with yes. uh, Joan Crawford. It, it's just, it's interesting. This The rivalry between them hadn't, really started yet at this point um i don't think they at this point cared much about the existence of the other person in any way um so it's interesting that they were even i it's just odd to me this is when the only time they were nominated against each other yeah isn't that crazy a full decade before baby jane Uh, exactly a decade yeah isn't that crazy julie harris though is an interesting nominee because this is kind of a new hollywood uh, person um she doesn't end up spending a ton of time in hollywood she makes uh a very important movie in a couple of years called east of eden and uh, then she's in a really great uh thriller called the haunting um but but julie harris is still very much a very young uh very much of the actor studio person and she's nominated with all of these very traditional actresses mm-hmm. you know and it's very true of a 50 something year old shirley booth yes who is just delightful in this movie i have She's to say and heartbreaking and absolutely heartbreaking yes. she plays the you know the battered wife of an alcoholic who falls off the wagon again i mean it's just such a moving performance and also so real the whole performance feels so lived in and I think that is largely because she obviously originated the role on Broadway, won a Tony Award for it. Uh, this yeah. is one of those rare examples of an actor who reprises yeah, cool. their role and wins an Oscar for a Tony. You know what I mean? It's it's And it's very deserved. I think this movie is so, so good. And I, I myself personally, would place this movie on the Best Picture lineup as well. It's I a really... It's- really good movie and it's not easy to it film is. plays we we've run into a few situations where film plays came off very dull definitely but this, this is, is so, not one of those situations so watchable and it's because of her it is due to her she makes this movie very very watchable it's just really really remarkable if you haven't seen come back little shiba i highly recommend it and if you think it's odd that that hunky burt lancaster is playing the alcoholic husband, and he does dirty himself up a little bit for it, but it's yeah. still Burt Lancaster. Um, if you think yeah. that's if you think that's odd, just know that it was because he was involved in the movie that it even got the financing. Exactly, you they kind of had to have him to get the movie made. What yeah. I also love too is like this is just such a success story. Shirley Booth coming yeah. from the stage, winning a Tony, winning an Oscar, then going into television, having a huge TV career, winning two Emmys. Like, this just only helped her career be catapulted into stardom. And I just yeah, love she's that only it won, to her. She's only a Grammy short of an EGOT. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. yeah um, she has that triple crown of acting, and you can see why. She's really, really a, a remarkable actress. 
Speaking of uh, multiple awards, yes. uh, we got John Ford winning Best Director in uh, for The Quiet Man, which is one yes. of his seminal films. Yep, this will be his fourth and final win for Best Director. It's interesting uh, and- that he only won once for a Best Picture winner. Three of them came from mm-hmm. non-Best Picture winners. Isn't that yep. odd? They definitely respected him more on the directorial front than on the film's overall production, it seems. Uh, I guess so. And it's also rare that he doesn't really win Best Director for any true Western movies, even though he's considered the greatest Western director director of all time. And this this movie stars John John Wayne, Wayne, which is the only one of his... Right, this is the only movie of his starring John Wayne to win him an Academy Award for director as well. The Quiet Man is a, is a lovely little movie um, about a small Irish town and John Wayne coming into that Irish town and his relationship with his frequent co-star Maureen O'Hara, who's also in a ton of John Ford movies. Yeah. There's a lot of folklore about John Ford being in love with Maureen O'Hara and... and that strange it's a strange situation um but uh there's a lot there's probably some moments even if you haven't seen the quiet man that you've maybe seen in film montages because there's like this very famous scene where he kisses her and the wind is blowing and the doors open and and uh which you've probably seen in et that's kind of like there's that scene with elliot yeah in the school classroom dissecting the frogs and while et is watching the quiet man back home and they're sort of mirroring each other yeah you see this movie uh as you said in montages all the time this movie uh which is also nominated for best picture is probably the best movie after high noon for me uh, it's interesting because it was made at Republic Pictures, which was what they called a Poverty Rose studio. <laughs> um, and so this is this is like the the biggest, highest grossing film Republic ever did because they mainly just did cheap movies, mm-hmm. you know. And it, this was shot in gorgeous Technicolor and it was shot on location in Ireland. It's a gorgeous movie and I, I can see why it took home. A directing Oscar, and I agree with you. Out of the five nominated for Best Picture, it's definitely the strongest one <laughs> after High Noon. I agree with you. But, but we talk about what's missing from Picture and Director, because there's a movie that won. Is it, is it five Academy Awards? It is. And it wasn't nominated. The it Bad wasn't. and the Beautiful is one of the most fun movies about filmmaking. From it's interesting. Movie. Yes, it is. It's definitely a peculiar little movie. Um, I, I mean, like, I can see it's not great. I want to say that it is not necessarily a great film, but it is so much better <laughs> than what wins Best Picture and so much better than probably uh, Ivanhoe, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't want to say The Bad and the Beautiful is one of the great movies of all time, but I do think it's interesting that it wins five Oscars and isn't nominated for director or picture yeah. Especially when Minnelli was nominated for um, An American in Paris, which is inferior. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, uh, it's it's odd to me. Because the, the best part of Bad and the Beautiful, which is, by the way, one of the most, like, over-the-top melodramas. Correct. <laughs> it's, but it's like, it's like a stylistic thing, so it yep. works. 
the best part of the movie and what I think is the reason I would have nominated him for best director is the scene in Lana Turner's car uh, where the camera is like whipping around her as she's driving in the rain. (laughs) Yes. So visually interesting. Like, I, I don't know. I, I would have nominated it for Best Picture. That's it. I love that. However, you know what? It didn't get nominated, Rands, because The Greatest Show on Earth made it into <laughs> the Best Picture Finally lineup. It's The Greatest Show on Earth. Uh, please oh, just give God. me... I, want, I just want to hear your, your gut reaction to seeing this movie. What are your, your thoughts? The Greatest Show on Earth is not The Greatest Show on Earth. No. Um, the Greatest Show on Earth... Cecil B. DeMille, who is known as a showman, um, known for making big, epic movies, um, had been around for decades, literally since the beginning of movie making. And um, I I have to think that maybe they thought this was their last time to honor him. They didn't know the Ten Commandments was going to come out in a couple of years, which I think I would have found more acceptable than this definitely that's held up in popular culture um but the greatest show on earth is a circus movie that's two and a half hours long that is part um a circus melodrama with a love triangle well a love square really between um uh betty hutton who oh goodness betty hutton and um (laughs) Charlton Heston and then uh, <laughs> and uh, there's trapeze artists and there's clowns and there's all these other little things going on and then part of it is like a documentary about what a circus is like because they have real life circus footage and an announcer telling us about circus life and this cuts in and the and they'll show us there are segments of the movie where you see five or six minutes of a circus act and the story just stops to watch a circus act, which I mean, it's a circus movie. So you're going to expect to see some of this stuff, but it, it it's to the point that the movie halts. And even though, and the thing is, it's not even a good movie that halts. It's just yeah. a, a movie that halts. It's a, it's a badly acted movie that's halting. You know, Betty Hutton was, I, I've seen her in um, a movie called The Miracle of Morgan's Creek, uh, which is a funny movie, Preston Sturges film. And she was very good at like that type of light comedy. I don't think melodrama is her strong suit. Um, I also am not a fan of her singing voice. And then uh, Dorothy Lamore is in it, I guess, um, <laughs> barely. And uh, Gloria Graham is in it. Uh, and mostly, so, mostly being carried around by the trunk of an elephant. <laughs> yes, which I, it's it's it, like some of that is interesting. Some of it's like, oh, the set thought's really an elephant, and she was really doing that. And and props to Betty Hutton for really doing trapeze because. Because probably the most interesting parts of the circus that we watch have to do with the trapeze. Of course, most of that <laughs> is because the other her rival trapeze artist is played by a man named Cornell Wilde, mm. um, who plays the great Sebastian, and he has a um, 
of what kind of accent would we type this as? As a uh, some kind of like where they say where he's from, isn't he from like Hungary or something? Somewhere well, like he is from Hungary in real life. So it must oh, in be. real life he is. Okay. Um, I, I I it was a very it was it was like a European yes accent, and he um he comes in and and I you would think he was actually he actually had an accent he he didn't he was raised in America even though he was part even though he was Hungarian um he's in Leave Her to Heaven which I told you about a few years ago he's the male lead in that movie he's he is so beautiful mm. so attractive in this movie um he has a body that is not what you think of 1950s bodies looking like Mm -hmm. it he he has he has all he got he got all the abs he got uh he got really good shoulders he is what you say what we call today shredded he is shredded he's like a sculpted like greek god he's beautiful and he is wearing these tights shirtless (laughs) He's shirtless and wearing tights for half of the movie. And then partway through the movie, something happens. I'll just tell them. Who cares? Yeah. You don't. <laughs> um, he gets injured. And at that point, I texted Sam and said, he just got injured and I'm afraid he's not going to be shirtless anymore. <laughs> and I said, you would be correct. That's about the same point in the movie where my attention span started to wander as well. And to be fair, that's kind of the part of the movie where everything goes off the rails, if you will, pun intended. Not that things are great before that, but they're at least like, but things are clipping along. Definitely. I mean, this movie starts to just go off the wayside. And let me tell you, the whole ending of this movie is just so beyond ridiculous. The fact that it ends with that, like, immediate blood transfusion to revive Charlton Heston after being crushed by a car. I'm just like, this is so ridiculous. There's a blood transfusion. I can't believe hey, there's a blood transfusion. That happens outside of a hospital. And we're just supposed to accept that. Because like apparently Charlton Heston's character has this the very rare blood type. But oh, the great Sebastian also just so just happens to have happens it as well. To have, what are so the chances? When the best thing about your movie is a cameo of Bing Crosby and Bob Hope eating popcorn and watching the circus, you've got trouble. I will say that was the only part where I actually like laughed and like life was back into my body it is a good it is a good cameo it's a good cameo and and they're watching dorothy lamour who is in a bunch of the road movies with them um they're watching her and the camera just pans it's like they don't settle on them you could blink and miss it but they are eating popcorn simultaneously and it's delightful so for me this whole movie really felt like a musical but instead of musical songs and dance sequences we get these drawn out circus performances like you said and for the same reasons why i don't care for movies like an american in paris where the music completely stops the storyline it's the same thing here like you mentioned earlier these circus performances stop any kind of drum dramatic tension they're building but it's awful drama anyway so you know yeah, you don't really like care waiting. i kind of wish that i mean i don't know how much Excuse me, this would have helped because the story had other issues. But um, I would have liked it had they taken the circus performances and piecemealed them out more 
and intercut them with the with the drama that's happening like behind the scenes yeah. in a way where you just see like 10 seconds of something and then you go I mean like you could give a flavor without having to stop the performance cuz literally the only performances that you see that have anything to do with the plot are the trapeze rivalry yeah which are probably the best parts of the movie and I get that they used a real circus and the Ringling Brothers and all that yeah. um because you're seeing real circus performers throughout the entire movie and and maybe people in 1952 uh, going to the movie this was the only opportunity they had to see that I don't know um and I'll say this too you know doing some research on Barnum and Bailey and the greatest show on earth they have there you know this came out in 1952 in 1956 that was when Barnum and Bailey stopped operating under the big circus tents they started to fill stadiums instead because it was cheaper the big top exactly what i think this movie probably did for a lot of people when they watched it was showed them you know it kind of like encapsulates what the circus used to be in its in the highest days of its you know spectacle for some people who didn't go to the circus back when it was huge you know in the 20s and 30s and whatnot this was kind of their first introduction to oh hey look this is what we used to do before movies you know the the closest the closest comparison I can have to what this was probably like is is like the way that uh, some comic book movies today make mm-hmm. Buku's money regardless of how good or bad the merits of the film are beyond the special effects. People go to get a special effects um, extravaganza, you know, an action extravaganza. Yes. And... I guess The Grey Show on Earth was a situation where people went for the opulence of seeing uh, these circus acts and seeing them on a grand scale. Yes, and boy, did they show up. This was the highest grossing movie of 1952 for United States, for um, Britain, for, I think, France as well, it made a bunch of money. And I will say, kind of tying into what you mentioned earlier um, with all of the drama surrounding movies like High Noon uh, with the uh, McCarthyism going on, I think that also played a part in why this movie did win Best Picture. DeMille being a you know largely conservative Republican and this movie win- making so much money, I think, and also them wanting to honor DeMille for his body of work, you know, ranging back it to the silent film a era. storm of all of those things, I think, you know? Absolutely, and I think it that was, kind of shuffled it into place. It's weird that they didn't see The Quiet Man as that alternative, though, because The Quiet Man's the better movie, you know? But I wonder if that's just because it was from such a tiny studio, you they know? Didn't have power behind... That's a very good point. I bet you Republic maybe didn't have the power behind them to 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 work for that oscar you know they didn't exactly. have the team the creative uh, the the publicity team and whatnot um exactly. so you know and they didn't have the voting power because a lot of, at this point a lot of the voters were still very much in allegiance to a studio because they that was their employer um exactly. it's it's a weird it is a weird oscar it does say something about 1952 at it the definitely least does. but um, but it is definitely one of the bottom winners. And it truly is. You know, on a lot of lists you see nowadays of worst Oscar winners or controversial Oscar winners, this usually, if it doesn't lead the pack, it's in the top two or three yeah. worst 
best picture winners of all time. It's just such a bizarre winner. It it feels so left. I mean, like even an American in Paris, even though I don't feel it was the right winner, it's still like, and it's an entertaining movie for what it is, you know. And yeah, but, yeah. but this is this is the most just bizarre best picture winner so far. Yes. So let's see here, Rance. What are we getting into next? Uh, next time. Okay, so next week, uh, we just had the 25th um, Oscar ceremony. Um, we've a couple times stopped the show to do some rankings and whatnot of the Best Picture winners. But I think what we're going to do this time for the 25th is we're just going to kind of do a gut check and see um, where we are in Oscar history, how the Oscars have evolved in the first two and a half decades, um, and what we think Oscar officially means now that all of the growing pains are done. Absolutely. We've really have a, a formed and pretty much fully realized ceremony now. And it is truly now that it's on television in particular, it is truly the pinnacle of film and Hollywood glamor. And it's, it's, this is something that is known internationally as the pinnacle of of what film greatness means it is the award you want beyond all other awards that is exactly right so folks tune in with us next week and we will go back and look over the first 25 years of the academy awards 